Computers online. Archiving 44K. Initiate sequence. T minus 30 seconds. Server connection confirmed. T minus 25 seconds. NSA doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment we're going to be speaking to Joachim Van Wing. Hello Joachim. Hi Len. I've got a little better pronunciation of your name this time. You've come a long way in four weeks' time. You, 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 you said you would be proficient in pronouncing my name right in just a couple of weeks, and you did. Thanks. Good. Well, I wanted to have an opportunity for you to tell people about people. your very successful conference that was put on, and just recap it. It was this is the third year I think you've did it. Is that correct? The third year? Yeah, it's it's a it it was a third edition in something that's becoming a tradition year after year. We take it one year at a time. Uh, this was now the, the third venue or the the third conference we did, and. I've got a gut feeling that a fourth one is coming, but next year we want to probably do something something else again, uh, something quite similar, changing the format somehow, somewhat, left and right. But let me let me especially Len uh, tell you how much me myself, my family enjoyed your company, having you over as a quite special guest, talking in late, late, very late into the nights. Uh, about the JFK case, which is really rare for uh, a European guy like me to have someone over and to talk knowledgeable about the, the subject matter. It's it's really rare to to come across someone like yourself and have these very long, interesting conversations. You, you told me a few things that I didn't know before. It was really good to make your, your acquaintance. And I think we made the best of which was probably the hardest and the most difficult subject matter of the day because we we had six subjects that we wanted to cover so i programmed the content of the day we had six speakers over uh one speaker would speak about the climate data and the climate change another one about raw materials and how we were going to uh fuel and and how we are going to redo our energy grid and where these renewables need to come from. Another professor spoke about geopolitics in the light of the BRICS uh, meeting, which uh, was held in Johannesburg just uh, one week ago, uh, and all these topics. And so we, we tried to speak about JFK and the significance of the murder case and the role of the media in all of that. And it was probably the hardest of the six simply because we were trying to come across or we, we were trying 
to speak to a very unsophisticated audience. Because when it comes to JFK, we Europeans, we know nothing about the case. Uh, if it were a quiz, we would say 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald. And that would sum it up, uh, the total knowledge of what the average European actually knows about the case. Well, and if I could cut you off, one thing I disagree with you, I know what you mean, you, you mean on this topic. I was very impressed that you had a very sophisticated audience. These people were not people that came out of uh, just a high school or a bar or something. They all looked like university professors, teachers, really intellectuals that came to something to really learn. And they decided to spend the whole day with whatever you were putting on. This is the third time in a row, and it was just the fourth. I, I can't overemphasize enough, really, just on, on what a quality of audience you had, never mind the speakers, so that you were disseminating information that they would be taking back into the uh, back to their hometowns or wherever they were, a lot of people from out of town. And it was like really like... For instance, in the JFK assassination, if just at arm's length you didn't know anything, I could say, listen, the president was killed, but they had a commission to look into it, and those guys lied, and they knew they were lying, and their job really was to cover it up. So next time you see a commission by a government agency, you should be maybe a little doubtful, Larry, look into it for yourself. And with these other topics that you mentioned, I thought it was kind of complimentary because somebody's talking about, for instance, a cryptocurrency or, you know, bricks, you know, should I, should I ditch the American dollar? You know, what this petrodollar, what's it doing for the world? You know, what, what is an alternative? It just is opening your eyes up in many, you know, in that case, you had six topics, but it was just something that was so worthwhile that I didn't know that. I'm going I'm going to get the guy's book. I'm going to read about that, you know? And uh because uh, because of your personality disposition, it was so smooth. It's like you you might have even had um a guest that some people may not have got along uh, agreed with, but they would sit and listen to every word to go, "Okay, that's a different point of view." Like case in point, I just interviewed Oliver Stone about nuclear power. And some people are very, oh, that, you know, forget it. It's crazy. And you go, well, how about if you scaled it down to very small, where it just did a small community? You know, it only took four men to run it instead of like Three Mile Island, where if something goes wrong, it's huge. Could you handle this idea? Well, you know, you watch this documentary. I had to explain to a few people. Just think of it differently. Think of a very small scale. Now, what scale would you be comfortable saying, this is safe? It's no problem. Right. And um, in, in the various different topics, right, uh, which which I enjoyed, I just want to um, we'll keep we'll keep talking about this. But um, it's very rare. It's refreshing. You don't see this on the news. I mean, maybe with Tucker Carlson, I'm starting to get this respect for him where he's really going after these different people and, and either taking them to task or revealing just how right, like, in, you know, alternate views are, like Bobby Kennedy, or if you're talking about uh, problems with vaccinations, everybody's falling in step. Yeah, I got vaxxed, I got vaxxed, and you go, do you find any problems? Are there any adverse reactions? Where do you even report adverse reactions? How many have there been? Okay, let's take a look at it. Are you What? So, so, that's what I enjoyed about this conference, and, and your disposition that you were very open to, to looking into both sides of a question 
and we talked about a lot there. And like you say, well, after the conference, we came home and talked into the hours, into the night and that. But that's kind of the way it should be. And I wish there was more people like you doing that around the world. Well, I, I hope I, I can be a little bit of an inspiration to some other people because all I did was simply getting people together, having a great barbecue, putting people at a table, uh, serving great dinner, and then having some interesting guests who can speak to an audience very knowledgeably on very relevant themes and, and subjects. And th that's what we did the previous years, and that's probably what we will keep on doing, uh, trying to invite highly interesting people who, are, who have a lot of expertise on very relevant domains and, 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 and subjects and, and get them to talk before an audience that's, that really wants to be there and enjoy the day amongst people who have the same concerns when it comes to the media because you, you just dropped a five-letter word. You, you, you said media. So what, why, why did we or why did I program these six former professors or, or experts? It's because what they have to say is simply not covered by, by the media. And if the media covers it, they, they, they only cover it halfway or... Or, or send out a lot of misinformation or, or half information. And these subjects are so relevant, so significant for the next couple of years for society as a whole, that I think the people, the audience there should receive the, the complete view, the total picture, the, the complete picture on, 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 on those subjects. And that's why I brought these six speakers, one of whom was, was yourself, together on, on, on what I think is, is relevant and is telling and gives an insight on where we are going as a society and, and which will be the dynamos and the drivers of where we will end up a few years from now. Um, it's just my hunch, it's a guess, it's my gut feeling on which teams will define the shape of things to come. Energy is one of them, geopolitics is, macroeconomics and monetarism is, health issues will keep on being something to watch, to watch closely. So what has been some of the feedback then from attendees? I think you had like an email thing where people could email you and give you comments. I didn't receive that much feedback by email, but I, since I know half of the audience uh, personally by now, they are really honest and at lip on, uh, or, or really open on, on what they thought about it. Uh, they all rude the, the weather uh, and the temperature because it was really cold and windy and it was nothing compared to last year when we were, we were barefoot in, in, in the grass, uh, enjoying the sun and... Uh, right, and last year was outdoor but this year it was indoor on account of the weather. But so still, that was yeah. the thing that, that really made it into a special venue this year, uh, the, the really cold weather for, the, the, for August. When it comes to the content, I actually didn't receive any real negatives. No, that's just down to the quality of the speakers. We were really lucky that Marcel Kroc, yourself as a second speaker, Simon Michaud, who was the, the revelation of the day, I guess, the Australian uh, mining engineer who works for the Finnish government, and he's leading a research team on energy and raw materials. So was Pierre Capel. Pierre Capel, he's a, he's a, he's a, a Dutch uh, 
a professor speaking about health and how emotions interact on your well-being and your cellular energy. Kees van der Peil, uh, who, who's a, a, Sussex, a former Sussex professor. And then Ivan van der Kloot, one of Flanders' uh, most outspoken uh, macroeconomists. They all brought, and yourself as well, brought a narrative and an insight that simply is not heard in the old standard media. So just just by the fact that people know they are being well informed by people who speak their mind and 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 can elaborate a lot more than when they are on camera or on the six o'clock news is really refreshing in this day and age. With well, one anecdote I had, I think uh, his name's Marcel, right? Yeah. He was a geologist, right? And he was talking for a while about Venus, Venus Project. And for some reason, I thought, oh, they're sending um, some unmanned something to, to Venus. for And he goes, no. I said, do you mean Venus Project from Jacques Fresco? He goes, yes, I'm working on that right now. And it's in the works. And he had a, like a brochure of what they're planning. And I was just astounded. I go, this is the kind of thing I want to you know, sit down and have coffee and tell me what you're doing. I respected Jacques Fresco and, uh, and all that Zeitgeist uh, videos that he was on and all his work in Roxanne Meadows. And, I, of course, I interviewed them. I mean, I, yeah. Over the years, I've tried to interview people that interest me. And to find out just kind of, uh, I mean, I, I was really funny that I thought he, was, he meant really Venus, you know. So I'm just, you know, that was a... Uh, funny for me i enjoyed very much the three of us sitting around a small table at the airport waiting for simon's flight just the three of us and then then talking about his venus project when, when you're one-on-one -on -one or just the, the three around one table uh the, the as we say in, in flanders the tongues get a little bit more loose provides a, a lot more insight on on the plans people have well, in the near future the thing is, as you mentioned this is not covered in any regular news. Nobody's talking about whatever happened to Jacques Fresco, Roxanne Meadows, and the Venus Project. Or, you know, uh, it, they're just, it's not brought up. It's not, I don't think, hidden. But they, they'll talk about this Hawaii thing for the next six months, right? They'll, they'll talk about Joe Biden. They'll talk about Trump being arraigned in jail. Have you seen his mugshot? You know, whatever. They don't talk about anything that's outside a little more intellectual. And I guess it's dumbed down. Yeah, I was really encouraged just to, to meet somebody who was working on that, showing and talking about the plans. And, and he was talking about stuff. Well, this is our six-month plan. And then a year from now, we hope to do this. And it was like, yeah. So with some of the other speakers, I didn't understand who, I'm only speaking English, so when they did, gave their lecture, it was uh, Dutch. Or, but, you know, some of the things I didn't understand. After coffee, you know, people talked English, that, but for presentations and, and stuff that was there. By the way, where can people find some of these uh, videos and presentations? Do you have a website uh for it? Uh, uh, we will uh, soon, and I am building a very small landing page on which uh, that pe that people can already visit. Uh, it'll probably be in two languages, Dutch and, and 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 English. And as soon as the 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 footage is uh, is prepared for uh, airing, it 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 will it will be linked on on the website. But I'm still waiting to receive the the final editing sure. because. It's 
the crew who 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 will uh, edit and and prepare all the the, the six uh, excerpts, uh, which are fifty to sixty minutes. Uh, it'll take another few weeks um, yeah, because. Okay, the, no worry. I just when you have that ready, let me know, and I'll oh, either have you on again to talk about it, or we'll just make links to that. You'll and, be the uh, first. You gave me a few links for last year. I think uh, Robert Malone, Dr. Robert Malone, and, and it was one or two that were in English that uh, I'm not sure if I posted the links for them. I believe something that might be interesting to your audience is the, the, the interview last year we did with um, uh, Geert van den Bossen and Mark Watelet. We did it in, in English, so it, would, it should be quite comprehensible. And it was actually on the measures uh, during COVID. And um, uh, Geert van den Bossen, he's, he's a virologist, and um, uh, Mark Watelet, he is a, a bio... Um, um, Oh, what's what's uh, uh, he's a bioengineer, I, I think, and he's quite knowledgeable on ivermectin and what the workings would have been if prophylactically we 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 would have put the entire world or or, or Europe or North America for that matter on a six-week prophylaxis of ivermectin and hydro uh, uh, hydrochloroquine. Um, and the the data is clear on that, and we spoke about that last year in 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 full when 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 COVID season was still on, and it was quite a dissident uh, and uh, a risky thing to do. Uh, but nevertheless, we yeah, did it. it's strange because I know I know I had people that say you know you're you're killing people if you're not vaccinated, right? And uh, and then. I, because of whatever reason, you know, I was living with a father-in-law who was like 96 at the time. You know, I thought, well, I don't want to bring... How can they tell you that you, you could even be a carrier? You don't even know it, you know? I, I don't get into all that talk. But um, it's good that you had people on with a contrary point of view saying, look, at here's data. Somebody are looking at it and, and uh, giving a conclusion. I'm looking at it. I'm telling you the, the opposite conclusion, right? And either... These guys are pulling the wool over your eyes and they're making a lot of money on you or I'm wrong. But it's good to, to show both sides of the coin um, to let people know that sometimes something is not cut and dried. There is a gray area with things. And they say, listen, if it's a bit risky, but if you want to take that risk, go ahead. And, but but here, here is the data. You know, do you like, for instance, um, I think what they're saying with very young children and COVID, they just, they just weren't catching it. So, I mean, if you got three, four, five year old kids, should you get them vaccinated? You know, will was it have more harm in the long run than not? You know, and how many vaccinations are safe? You know, or are they? You know, it's it's always the the ten fifteen percent that. Uh, that's absolutely spot on. I mean, the the old traditional media, when you go to CNN, MSNBC, or whatever institutionalized media channel, 10-15% of what they say and claim is absolutely true. And and, and that's the whole point. The same goes for the, 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 the JFK murder case. The same goes for 9-11. The same goes for the, mur for the killing of Dag Hammarskjöld or Olaf Palme or, or uh, Iron Contragate. 
10-15% of what the official narrative and the official media brings is absolutely right. But it, 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 it overshadows and it puts the reality, the other 85% uh, really in a, in, a, in a false light. And um, the JFK murder case actually helped me, myself, to detect everything wrong with the official narrative on 9-11 and on Corona, for instance. I'm not saying these people are lying all the time about everything. It's about what they are being genuine about and then the 80% of which is obfuscated, put yeah. in a, a wrong light. And it takes a guideline like and an, a knowledge of, of the JFK case to detect the same methods uh, the media is using to disguise reality from fiction. And therefore, the role you played in my life, Len, is uh, significant because you, you were the go-to place for me to, to learn and to, to scholar and to self-educate myself on JFK. And being knowledgeable ab about the intricacies of the JFK case actually helped me to detect right from wrong, false from right, narrative from reality when it comes to Corona 9/11 and whatever whatever case the media is 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 bringing. So, yeah. um, well, I, in my I, lifetime now, I see these ads were all over CNN. Were brought to you by Pfizer. Brought to you by Pfizer. Like the news is now <laughs> sponsored by Pfizer. You know, that, that's something and it was in, so refreshing. In Europe, yeah, that that's uh, something we we really don't know if in, in Europe that's really unheard of that these companies would interrupt news bulletins or before or after the official news that they would air their commercials uh, that that would really be unheard of it's 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 something typically northern american that that we europeans cannot relate to well let's see i just wanted to uh, give you some time today just to just to go over and uh, let people know that you had a, a very successful conference. And if I can do anything to help, you'll have another one next year. And if the video is not ready yet, fine. The day it is ready. You have previous YouTube. You know, send me any links you have and I'll put them up for the other speakers that were from previous sessions that, you know, may be of interest even after the fact. Hello. It's like Hello. that because in the JFK assassination, right, you, you see somebody giving an official opinion or a Cyril or somebody, uh, you know, and you go, I didn't really realize how right he was. Not only was he right, it's like, you know, talking about Jim Garrison. No, he was on to something. And people might want to critique Jim Garrison, said, oh, he failed in his trial, whatever. At least he was there trying. At least he was doing something. And about many of these topics... And even like, like the cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and things like that, I listen with interest. It doesn't mean I'm investing heavier or anything, but I think modern day, we have uh, something which is not cut and dried. It's the Ukraine war in Russia. Now, you know, it, who's right and who's wrong? It's, it isn't just 100%, but at least get up to speed with it's not the way things are being reported. And maybe we better caution our responses because, you know, we're being misled, you know, and lied to or whatever. But, you know, um, I listen to other alternative people like uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor and Scott Ritter and, uh, and even Tucker Carlson now, right? Which is a big change. 
I I didn't think too much of him for years at at Fox, right? And his little bow tie and that. But now when I see him, I'm impressed, and I'm happy to say that uh, I've changed my mind. You know, I'm going to listen to his. I mean, <laughs> I think he did an interview with Trump, and I'm I, like 200 million people viewed it or something. It was just unheard of, you know. And you know, I liked Joe Rogan. But uh, we all like somebody. We all tune into somebody. I'm glad that you liked Black Op Radio, and uh, I hope that um, my I mean, when you when I saw the first episode of Fifty Reasons for Fifty Years on that big screen you had, I remember thinking right away, that looks very impressive. That looks like a you know a real news thing. And but I remember I'm in my little studio and there's some blue screen hanging behind me, and none of those pictures were up there at the time when I talked. So I remember. <laughs> You know, I remember just making the stuff in the weeds and then to see it, God, well, 10 years later, right? Yeah. yeah. 2013. Yep. But um, yep. I, I hope if with the conference I did, if I can accomplish that the people who were there and the people who will see the who and the people who weren't there, but will see the footage and the video of the speakers we invited on the platform, if the result would be that 10% of them would be triggered to learn more about the JFK murder case and then would end up, as we advised them, to start looking at the 50 episodes of 50 Reasons for 50 Years, then I am a very happy man. Because that was one of the reasons I wanted to give a, provide a, pro, a, a platform to you, Len, so that people would get to know you as a as a radio host, but also as a documentary maker. So uh, what you did with 50 Reasons for 50 Years for me is a real legacy. It's it's it'll it'll live on. It's a primal document on the JFK murder case. It's one of the best documentaries out there. And, uh, you know, the quality of it, uh, Len, it's really interesting for very knowledgeable and sophisticated people and also for newbies, people who want to start from scratch and want to get involved in the case and want to learn about it. It's, it's a great introduction. So from all points of view, it's a document series for the ages. So once again, congrats. Great job. Great okay, job. Okay, well, thank you. But thank you for your conference and putting it on and inviting me to take part in that. I uh, look back with pride. I say, you know, wow, I helped. I did my little share. And I was certainly not any, there's some real heavy hitters there, let me put it that way. So I was very pleased to meet people. And like with all conferences, you attend a seminar, but then when you're out having coffee and talking to the guys one-on-one -on -one and that, that's when you really learn and, and get the stuff. So I'm just glad for the connections that I made and, and glad to meet you and your family too. It was a pleasure to have you over and uh, the way you brought your, your own topic during the 60 minutes you had on, on the stage was just was just great to have a Canadian over something very special for for our Belgian Flemish uh, audience. So it was a good thing was that I already knew like 50 reasons you said people may not know a lot. So let's just give them little tidbits of something. So when you hear the next, the, you know, the, the, the idea like you had a theme of what the media like if even you can't trust 50 percent. What's the 50% you should be wary of? What, what should we look for? In the JFK assassination, we've seen these commissions where you can't trust their conclusions because you go in and you read the evidence and you look at the conclusion. Like, so if you're talking about climate data, can we just take it all in? 
Or is there a different way to read it? Or like the Ukraine war, you know, did Russia just, was it unprovoked attack of Ukraine? Or, you know, so all these different topics that went on, uh, it was great. So before we wrap up, I just want to, is there anything that you really want to mention about your speakers or anything that, uh, you know, because I'm sure I'm going to have you on again as time goes by. If you plan the next one, I'm going to really help promote this. I mean, well, I didn't know well, what to expect. I just went over there with a little suitcase and <laughs> let it roll. 12 months from now or 11, let's say next summer, we do a fourth edition, a fourth venue. And we would have two or three of the six speakers that would be in English. Then it would be worthwhile for some of your audience to come over to Europe. And uh, they, they would be, uh, we would really uh, appreciate these people being there and, and being part of, of the audience and, and enjoying each other's company. So if, if half of the speakers next year would be English native speakers or, or would speak in English, then it would be worthwhile of, of doing some promotion on, on, on Black Op Radio. And if then the, the subjects would be of some relevance for your audience, then, then why not? Why not? Uh, I would gladly welcome any listener of, of Black Op Radio to uh, the, the fourth uh, edition of, of the Speaker's Barbecue we'll okay. be doing next year. By the way, by calling it a barbecue, really does not do it justice. It was, it was just fantastic. It was uh, all-day food. I don't know, seven, ten course, whatever. So you outdid yourself that way. Well, it's it's something that brings a family together. Uh, so, in, in uh, uh, it's probably the same in in northern in, in North America. But if we come together with friends or family, we try to eat as well as we can and have really good food. So, if we want to instill a family-like atmosphere where people can really feel at home, it all starts with the food that you would expect your aunt or your mother or your grandmother to cook for you especially. And if we can uh, instill that feeling uh, and combine it with uh, very interesting speakers who, who are provided podium, then we have the both of the, the best of, of two worlds. And um, I think that part of the, of the format will probably not change. Uh, but I'm open to um, to start I, to, uh, to to look into ways of of making the venue next year even better. Uh, but when it comes to good food and the the family-like atmosphere of feeling at home, it's something that's something I really want to safeguard and make sure it's uh, it's it's um, in the DNA of 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 the event. You are him, Van Wing. It's been a pleasure to meet you and have you on the show again, and I look forward to doing a lot more with you and uh congratulations on a fantastic speaker's barbecue thank you so much then okay Great. i'll talk to you in the near future we'll keep in touch looking forward to and that send me Bye-bye. any any links i'll put them we'll in the do. show notes i will i will thank you len okay talk to you later okay bye bye you're listening to black op radio Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio in this segment, Mr. Jim DiEugenio from Los Angeles. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Well, it's always a pleasure to speak to you about your good website, Kennedy's and King. 
Com and anything uh, from Los Angeles that's new in the research. So I always just like to offer that. And I think listeners like it, that they can email in questions and um, you get to hear the, the, the tone of the voice and the you know expressions. And, so that's great. All right. At Kennedy's and King, the two latest articles, there's one called The Mystery of Kennedy's Brain Deepens. This is a combination of two interviews that the ARB did. One was with a guy named James Mastrovito of the Secret Service, and one is a guy named Ken Vratanik, who was a, a military guy who was stationed at the AFIP, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. Now, to say the least, oh, let, let me explain how I got onto this, okay? A few months ago, Oliver Stone was going to go on Tucker Carlson to talk about, I think, both of his films, the one on the JFK and the one on nuclear. Isn't that what he talked to you about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. New, new right, documentary. Yeah. Okay. But then, of course, Tucker Carlson got fired. Okay, so that fell through. But I had contacted, I had contacted a few people to ask them – is there anything that he should specifically talk about? And Malcolm Blunt told me, Jim, have you read the Mastrovito interview? And I said, no, I haven't. I haven't read about it, okay? And he said, so he said, that shows just how bad the Secret Service cover-up was. So he linked me to it, and I read the interview. Unbeknownst to me, I guess years and years ago, I think in 1996, Millicent Craner might have mentioned this, in an article she did for Probe, but like I said, that's that was 27 years ago, and so it obviously slipped my mind. And I think Vince Palomera talked about it. Yeah, he did. He did. He mentioned it very briefly in Honest Answers, but another of a couple of his books, he talked about it more. So I read the whole thing, and I called up Dave Montague. Okay, Dave Montague was the field investigator for the ARB. And I asked him, I said, how'd you get onto this guy? And he said that the, um, see, the, the ARB had people specializing in certain fields, okay? You know, there was uh, Doug Horn, eventually became the military guy. Manny Gillespie was a CIA guy. And Dave is the person who was supposed to go out and uh, find people. And have them agree to interviews. Joan Zimmerman was the woman on the Secret Service. And she's the one who told him that, you know something, this Mastrovito guy might be interesting. Well, originally she thought he was interesting because they found evidence that he was assigned to trim down the Secret Service file on the JFK case. And to put it mildly, he very much succeeded. He trimmed it down from five to six file cabinets down to one. Okay, so in other words, he cut it by more than 80%, whatever was in that file, right? Well, during the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Bob Blakey found out about this stuff, and he was very upset about it. And he actually threatened to bring legal action. But Master Vito said that, look... I was only doing what James Rowley had instructed us to do back in 1965. 
Okay, so he said that was his out. All right. But in her memo, Zimmerman said that it was Master Vito who decided what to keep and what to discard. Now we come to the most fascinating part of the interview. And I think it's the reason that Malcolm told me to read this thing. All right. Joan asked him, did you view or obtain any artifacts while you were in charge of the JFK file? And then he said, which must have been a shocker to everybody, he had received a piece of President Kennedy's brain. Can you believe this? He said it was in a vial about the size of a prescription bottle. But here's, the, here's what makes it even worse. It was from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. Now, Len, I don't have to tell you how weird that is because the Bethesda Medical Center and the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology are two completely different buildings you know, that are separated by at least a, a, a couple city blocks. So if this is true, how the heck did Kennedy's brain get over to AFIP? All right. Well, Zimmerman asked him who gave him the vial. And he said it was Walter Young, who was his superior at that time. And then when Young retired, Master Vito took over his job. And he assumes it was given to somebody at the AFIP to Young. But Young had died a year before. So in other words, we couldn't get to the bottom of this. Well, who the heck gave it to Young and why? I mean, I don't have to tell you how important that is. And then if you want to hear something even more bizarre, Master Vito, because they asked him what happened, and he said he put it through a food processor and destroyed it. You know, you can't make this stuff up. You know, you really can't make this stuff up. But that's how bad this case gets. So anyway, when I read this, I thought this would be a perfect thing for Oliver to talk about on Tucker Carlson because it coincided so much with what was in the film, JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed. Okay, because we spent some time on the whole problem of reconciling the evidence about Kennedy's brain in this case. All right. And, you know, for example... How the heck could it be 1,500 grams, you know? And why was a brain not weighed that night? And why did so many people see a severely damaged brain when, in fact, the illustrations and pictures don't show that at all, not even close? And then one of the things that we decided to make a very key part of the documentary was a testimony of John Stringer, the official autopsy photographer, who ended up denying he took the photographs of Kennedy's brain. It wasn't the kind of film he used, and it wasn't the kind of photographer process. So in other words, if the autopsy was done at Bethesda Medical Center, and if Hume said he gave everything to Admiral George Berkeley, then how did Kennedy's brain end, over at the, uh, end up over at the AFIP, and why? And another problem with this, of course, is the what they call the supplementary autopsy report. This was done on December the 6th, but that date is only handwritten. Everything else on the document is typed up, but the date is handwritten, which I think indicates that the date was filled in later. All right. Now, in that supplemental autopsy report, for the first, I think it's the first time it appears that Kennedy's brain is 1,500 grams. Well, how can his brain be 1,500 grams, but the average weight of a brain of a guy like him is 1,350 grams? And we've seen all the damage done, okay, in many pictures and films 
during and right after the assassination. How can it possibly be an intact brain? Now, the other guy that Montague tracked down was a guy named Ken Vitanik. This is very, very interesting because Montague told me that the combination of Vitanik and Mastrovito really deeply troubled Jeremy Gunn and Doug Horn. And let me explain why. Vitanik had been stationed at AFIP during 64-65. It was a joint interview done by Montague and Horn. In a remarkable piece of testimony, he actually backed up Mastrovito. He said he had seen Kennedy's brain during the 64-65 period. It was kept in a locked room as part of the AFIP complex. Like Master Vito, he said he knew it was Kennedy's brain because it was labeled as such. He also said it was under very tight control. All right, but he said, and this is the really puzzling part about his interview. He said that an AFIP employee, Joyce Manis, who ran the pathology data division, could produce a sheet which would show when it was received, from whom, and its current status there. I couldn't find anything indicating the ARB found this woman. So I don't know what happened to her. I don't know if they just couldn't find her or if they didn't try and find her. But boy, would she have been important. And so in this article, I concluded you know, that today, I believe, with the weight of these two interviews now added, and believe me, I would have included them in the film if I would have known about them. First of all, the one, neither the Warren Commission or HSCA ever faced this problem directly, you know, this whole thing about how on earth could the official pictures. And in fact, I don't even think the Warren Commission interviewed Stringer. All right. OK. He was the official photographer. All right. Today, I truly believe that. Let me quote my article. Kennedy's brain is like a signal light from a watchtower cutting through the foggy evening is now the key to the crime, providing guidance to the storm. And I really believe that. I really believe now that the mystery of Kennedy's brain is today one of the most paramount pieces of evidence that we have in this case, showing that Kennedy had to be killed by a conspiracy. How the heck did his brain get to the AFIP and why? Okay. And if, and here's another thing to think about. Hume said that Berkeley asked him for some of the exhibits because they were supposed to be buried with Kennedy's body on the 25th. All right, here's my question. If they were buried with Kennedy's body on the 25th, then what is Hume's looking at in the supplemental autopsy that's supposed to be 12-6, okay? How can he be looking at Kennedy's brain if it was buried with the body? And incredibly, those questions never got asked, okay? And then... How the heck did his brain end up over at the AFIP, you know, from the medical center, the Naval Medical Center? This is, you know, this is so bad. And, and in a couple of um, postings I did, I said, to me, this indicates that Berkeley knew what was going on. He had to have known what was going on. And I think that's why he gave out those hints, you know, a couple of them, one to uh, one in, I think, 1964 or 65 to the JFK library, and then that uh, letter that him and his lawyer wrote to Richard Sprague about saying that Berkeley knew that somebody more than Oswald had to been involved in the Kennedy assassination.
And then I learned from somebody that was close to Berkeley's family that the Secret Service went out and interviewed him once a year until the year that he died, which I believe is in 1989. Why would they do that? You know, why would the Secret Service, uh, maybe because he knew what they did with Kennedy's real brain? So this is all so completely and utterly fascinating that is just incredible. And I'm glad we brought it up in the film, and I can see now that we could have even gotten even further with it. Now, the other new article at Kennedy's and King is one I wrote about Martin Luther King versus the FBI. I called it Hoover versus King, the ARB documents, because oddly enough, the ARB declassified some documents dealing with uh, Martin Luther King and his battle with J. Edgar Hoover. Okay, I'm not going to talk about that one one tonight, but I just wanted to alert people to it because I think it turned out pretty well. I mean, it, it, it really shows just how wild and nutty J. Edgar Hoover was about King and the Civil Rights Movement and how this got even worse after JFK was killed. And then Bobby Kennedy essentially, you know, Hoover ripped out Bobby Kennedy's line into his office just a few days after JFK was killed. And Bobby Kennedy said something like, you know, those people don't work for us anymore. And so Hoover then essentially had an open field to run down King and also just broaden out to the rest of the civil rights movement. And as we also know, to the black nationalist movement, Uh, we know what happened to Fred Hampton. And so that's what that article is about. And I'll go ahead and uh, I'll talk about that the next time I'm on. There's a couple of things like a couple of letters I got and also... A news story. This is, you know, this is really remarkable. The Gallup website, which, of course, is one of the most famous polling sites that we have in the United States. They've been around forever, and most people think they do a pretty decent job. On July the 17th, they ran a news story because one of the things they do, of course, is they poll about the popularity of past presidents. John F. Kennedy remains the most highly rated former president. 90% of U.S. adults now approve of the job Kennedy did. 21% higher than second place Ronald Reagan's placing. 21% higher. That's really something. Seven of the nine past presidents included in the poll received majority retrospective approval ratings. The two exceptions are Donald Trump with 46%, okay, and Richard Nixon at 32%. I don't even know how Nixon got 32%, to be be frank with you. Gallup has periodically measured past president's approval ratings since 1990. This year's poll, conducted June the 1st to the 22nd, includes nine of the past 11 presidents, excluding Johnson and Ford, about whom nearly 20% of Americans could not offer offer opinions in the prior survey five years ago. Kennedy's rating has gone up since 2018 by approximately uh, four points. Okay? But 
it's really something. I mean, really. Here, let me let me quote this also. As might be expected, Republicans remember Republican presidents more fondly than Democrats do, while the reverse is true for Democratic presidents. The exception is Kennedy, who gets similar ratings, near 90% among all party groups. All right? Incredible. Okay? So, well, what do you think? Monica Wiesack did a good job? All right. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Somebody, somebody's doing some pretty good work. All right. That's really gratifying, you know. Uh, you know, Lynn. I mean, it's like we're not just, as they say, urinating it into the wind. You know, uh, at least in that respect. Okay, we're 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 doing some good. All right. Okay. Now here is. Let me answer a couple of questions. All right. Let's do uh, Gary Souza first. Thank you for your dedication to the truth. This is in response to your story about JFK's brain reportedly being under lock and key at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. Doug Horn of the ARB speculates the brain was dumped at sea February 28, 1966 in the Dallas casket along with several autopsy-related artifacts. Does your understanding of the timeline confirm this? It's another aspect of the true brain scenario. Thank you for your time, Gary Souza. I don't, you know, I I don't know about, you know, Doug did a lot of good work in his book, but there were several things that I don't think he had enough evidence about or for, and so some people believe that Kennedy's brain was eventually buried at the uh, at Arlington Cemetery. You know, he thinks that it was dumped. You know. Later on with the cat, I I don't I don't really know. Okay, I don't really know. I don't think anybody can be certain about things like this. So and things I can't be certain about, or at least strongly, strongly believe I'm correct. I don't like making uh, statements about that. All right, now there's a there's a, a rather uh, long one. Okay, from a guy named J. B. Dickey. I've been paying attention to the Kennedy assassination since I saw Executive Action. That's a movie you like, right? Yeah, Executive Action? Yeah, yeah. The intro is fantastic. I urge anyone who hasn't seen it, watch that first five minutes. Sure has a good cast. Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah. You know. Burt Lancaster, Robert Ryan, Will Gear, Steve Jaffe was part of that picture, okay? When Donald Sutherland came down to do the narration, uh, he told Rob Wilson and Oliver, you know, I was the original producer on Executive Action. Okay, and I asked Steve about this at the Kappa conference. He said, yes, yeah, Donald Sutherland really was. In fact, he's the one who got the screenplay written. But then he had a job coming in, and so he left, and we got Burt Lancaster to replace him. And they gave Burt Lancaster a percentage of the profits, and Steve said Bert was so grateful about that years on because he said he made over seven figures, you know, on his profit participation from executive action. My sister remembers the announcement over the public address system in grade school about the assassination. I must have been in kindergarten during the morning and home by the time it was over. All right, Kansas City had the same zone as Dallas. Mom saw Oswald shot live. 
I remember Kennedy's funeral on TV. Anyway, I guess it's been in my head all along. I've read all the great books on the assassination and some of the poor ones. At the time it came out, I owned a Seattle mystery bookshop and had Bucliosi's uh, book in my hand when it was released. I had high hopes for it, but and then he just hits three dots. I read all of John Newman's book, Larry uh, books, Larry Hancock's. If you name it, I've probably read it. I had an old copy of Jim Moore's Crossfire, but loaned it to someone who wanted to start learning about the case. I never got it back, so I decided to get a new one, and I picked it up today. I've had this one question rattling around in my head for years, and beginning to reread the Jim Mars book, I made it so I couldn't ignore it any longer. Most of the witnesses in Dealey Plaza said the first shot sounded like a firecracker, with the following shots clearly rifle shots. Some of the witnesses said the first shot hit the far left traffic lane, missing the limo. Generally, those there said it was one shot, followed by a volley of shots close together, three or four all the way up to six. If you believe the Zapruder film to be accurate, Kennedy is first hit in the throat by the time he comes out from behind the freeway sign. That's the wound in the throat, nicking the knot of his tie and not exiting the back of his neck. A small hole, the bullet may not have had the power to exit, or perhaps it stayed in the skull. Then there's the issue of the through-and-through hole. Okay. Then there's the issue of the through-and-through hole in the windshield. I wonder if this was the crack that folks heard as a firecracker, the bullet piercing the windshield from the front. What seems contradictory to me is that a bullet powerful enough to pierce the window and accurately hit Kennedy wouldn't then exit his body. Otherwise, for him to have been hit from the front without the windshield in the way, I would think that his first front shot would also have to have come from the knoll. The field of fire from the front, that high up on Elm, doesn't allow for a very wide angle of fire. But that is what is strange. I have not read any witness say that they heard a shot that early from the knoll or smoke at the west end of the plaza that early. The smoke is assumed to be from the final frontal headshot. So from where was the windshield bullet fired? I've seen ideas that it was from an utility box area under the overpass that has since been sealed. That would be the right trajectory for a shot through the windshield and into Kennedy. But Tag was down there, and there were folks on top of the overpass, and none of them reported any shots or smoke from there or anywhere else at that end of the plaza, let alone that early. From the south side, the other knoll, again, no reports of noise or smoke that I've read. And if it was fired from a silencer, I've always thought that a silencer takes off velocity and maybe accuracy. The Alkin 7 photo shows Kennedy holding his fist at his neck and the agents in the car behind looking up over their right shoulders. Okay, but I know of nothing, no witness testimony that says there was a very early, maybe the first shot, down shot from the west that hit him in the throat, other than the wound itself. 
I have JFK Revisited in hardcover, the four-hour show from Apple. I check your website almost daily amongst a number that I check. I wish Bill Kelly would proofread his posts better. I wish Harvey and Lee would do a better job of saying exactly what is new rather than just saying it's been updated. I wish Jamiri Farrell's site was set up. You could search essays by date. I wish Paul Blue hurried up with his, gar- with his garrison work. <laughs> Guy's got a lot of complaints, huh? <laughs> Obviously, I am impatient for more and better info. So what are my questions? From where was the first throat shot fired? Where was the windshield shot from? And are they the same bullet? I hope you have some ideas. And while we're at it, in the Alkin 7 photo, it shows a white car, three back from the limo, with the rear driver's side door open. That was a press car, right? Who opened the door that early? I don't think that was the press car. I think the press car came near the end. Thank you for your efforts and work. I appreciate what you do. All right. So I told him I would try and reply to this on your show. Well, in my opinion, and again, this is just an opinion. All right. I think that the windshield shot. See, I wasn't so sure about a windshield shot until I read Dave Mantic's book. But I think Dave makes a pretty good case that there was, okay? I think that came from the other side, where the late Sherry Feaster said that a shot came from. Okay, I think that's the most logical place for that, all right? Now, I'm not sure about this, and I want to say that I'm speculating. I'm not really sure, all right? If you believe the throat shot was an entrance, okay, as I think most of us do, you know, then that probably came from the other side, okay? Now, he talks about witness testimony, etc. Well, I would not dismiss a silencer. Not at all. In fact, I believe that they used silencers that day. I believe they use what is called directionally silenced rifles, okay? And those had been developed by the CIA, okay, uh, years before time, okay? And what and what the reason they're called that, okay, is because they have a, a certain kind of suppressor on them, <coughs> excuse me, which distorts the sound. Okay, it's not like an, an ordinary rifle, all right, where you hear the direction it's coming from. And you can be pretty accurate that's where it's coming from. Now, they distort the field, okay, very, uh, very well. And I, I believe Mitch Rebell was the guy who devised these things for the CIA. He was a weapons expert. He was a real incredible uh, guy who specialized you know, in developing these kinds of weapons for the CIA. All right. So if you don't, and this is why I think that you can't really rely, you know, on the ear witness testimony, you know, and I would, I would not at all dismiss the possibility that there were silenced rifles uh, used in the assassination. 
Okay, a lot of people used to think that you could only silence a handgun. That's not true. Where Bell was working on silenced rifles way back then at that time, you know, for, for the CIA. Okay, so that's, that's the best answer I can offer uh, to that kind of a question. You know, to be perfectly frank, I'm probably not the best guy you know, to uh, to reply to that, but I try and answer all the questions that you get, okay, because th that is not really my field of expertise today. I mean, when I first got into this, I was very interested in this stuff, you know, about the ballistics evidence, about the eye and ear witness testimony in Dealey Plaza, about the different kinds of weapons that could be used, okay, about the films and the photographs, etc., Okay, but, you know, as of as of late, uh, you know, I, I've kind of lapsed on that. Okay, I'm not as interested as I used to be in it. All right. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying, you know, that's that's the way I feel about this now. Okay, I think I have a couple of announcements to make. I'm I got an offer to be at the Cincinnati Library, I believe, on November the 15th. Okay, um, a guy named, a lawyer named Matt Crumpton, you know, who's working on an anthology book with me and Paul Blow, uh, gave them this idea. And I think I'm going to be there on November. I think the date will be November 15th. I'll update you later on that. Okay. All right. Um, I think I'm going to be at the WEC conference on the 17th. Okay, a couple of days later. You know, so it's a short flight from Cincinnati uh, to Pittsburgh. Okay, so that should be uh, a pretty easy negotiating thing. Okay, so I'm going to be in Cincinnati, then I'll be in Pittsburgh, and I'll firm up those dates for you. Okay, there's a, I tried to mention there's a book coming out, an anthology book. Did Paul Blow mention this? Well, yeah, he mentioned that he has the authors getting together and they're going to present something, right? So. Well, the, the, the book is, I think, called The Chokeholds, okay? And he goes through about nine or ten areas, which he thinks are pretty much indisputably signs of a conspiracy. And it's it's by Matt Crumpton, the guy I just mentioned, plus Andrew Eiler and uh, Mark Adamchik, who you've had on more than once, okay, and myself, okay? And we're finalizing that right now. We're getting some blurbs and we're doing the last minute copy editing. Okay. And so those are some announcements. You know, I, there aren't that many. I, have you heard about very many books coming out for the 60th? Because I haven't. No, not really. But I mean, there's always, there's always uh, books available over the year, but nothing new just for November. Yeah. I think we're going to be the only one. And I also believe, Len, that uh, Paul's going to translate this into French. Okay, so it's going to be up there in Quebec, and I think he's going to try and sell it in Europe also. Okay? Yeah, that's so, good, yeah. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Okay, so that's it for now at Kennedy's and King? Yes. Well, you already had on Jeff Carter. I had Jeff Carter on, and I had Jack Myers on as well. And you had Jack Myers on, right? Right. Okay, and so that, those are the two articles before that. And like I said, I want to do the King thing separately. Right. Okay. So we'll do that, you know, the next time we're on. And I undoubtedly will have some more questions 
you know, I'm always getting these things. Okay. Right. Yeah. And maybe we'll talk about uh, uh, the Fletcher Prouty, your your comments on uh, on Jeff Carter's articles too. Because yes, uh, I'll, I'll be glad to talk really, about uh, that. Yeah, I, I really should have uh, Malcolm Blunt on. Uh huh. I think that uh, he he said he feels bad a little bit that he that he brought out a couple of articles that that people have just grabbed and now they've misread them. And uh, mm. well, you want to hear? I'll close out with this. Yeah. You know, Jeff and I talked about Robert Sam Anson because he's the guy who really started this off before JFK came out with this cover story in Esquire. Okay, I think it's called the shooting of JFK. And he decided to go after Fletcher in this. Now, if you look back at his book, They've Killed the President, if I recall that book correctly, and I don't have it anymore since I think it's very much outdated, I don't recall him saying anything about Vietnam. But then later, when the film came out, he did a talk show with Carl Oglesby and David Lifton and a fourth guy in which he now said that the evidence of conspiracy is overwhelming. I think the most important thing now is why Kennedy was killed, and I think it's because of Vietnam. <laughs> so this is the guy who did a hatchet job on Prouty, but now he says, you know, the reason that they took out Kennedy was Vietnam. I mean, talk about doing a pirouette, okay? I mean, really. I mean, well, then how do you leave Fletcher Prouty out of that? Because as I think everybody knows, he was a guy who brought this to Oliver Stone. Okay, and and that now, and by the way, that's not to say that nobody else ever thought about this. Because there are people who did think about this prior to that time. You know, like um, those guys who wrote Johnny We Hardly Knew Ye. O'Donnell and Powers, it's in their book. Peter Scott wrote an essay. More than one, actually, about this. But it was Fletcher Prouty who actually brought this idea to Oliver Stone in the first place. Okay, and because obviously, the, you know, he was there. Okay, well, yeah, he was there working on yeah. his trip to reports with uh, General Krulak. Yeah, yeah with Victor, just, Victor Krulak. Yeah, yeah. And Victor Krulak was his boss, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so. You know, Krulak was one of the guys that Kennedy designated to be one of his point people on Vietnam. Okay, so obviously if, if that was Fletcher's boss, then he was he knew what the heck was going on. Okay. All right, and that's and this is one of the things that he gave to Oliver. Okay, so I, I never really understood Robert Sam Anson on this, okay, but but I just want to point out that flip flop he did. You know, in regards to uh, the motivation for Kennedy's death, you know, but, you know, I have to say, to be fair, up until the time of JFK, up until the time the movie came out, there weren't a heck of a lot of people who believed that that was the case. Everybody believed that it was the whole Cuba thing. Okay. And most of the books back then. You know, like uh, Henry Hurt and Anthony Summers and, you know, and, uh, you know, some of the later books, George Michael Avica, you know, etc. You know, those were the ones that were out there. And if you posited a conspiracy, 
that was usually where you went to, okay? But JFK changed all that. That film changed all that. And the combination of Prouty's input, plus John Newman's book, plus the fact that JFK was a hit. I mean, it was really a hit overseas. I mean, it was really a hit overseas. I think it did $75 million in the United States, but it did $200 million overseas. Okay, and I'm not sure about this, but Rob Wilson, the producer of JFK Revisited, told me that it's the highest grossing film that Oliver's ever put out. You know, I said, are you sure it's not Platoon? And he told me, no, it's not Platoon, because JFK did so well overseas. So that's why, you know, close, so it did close to $300 million. All right, and that's really saying something for a film like that. So this is one of the things, you know, that I think you simply, you simply can't slip away from this. I mean, not very many people were onto this at that time. And Fletcher wrote a very, very interesting article that I've been trying to find in that from, I think, 1986, in which, if I remember correctly, he essentially had the whole, the whole ball of wax at that time about the whole intelligence deception, about what Kennedy was really trying to do, about who were the good guys, who were the bad guys, and Sam 263, and how that was changed. And Sam 263, of course, is, is the, uh, I think it's October the 11th, and it says, we will be withdrawing the first 1,000 advisors at the end of the calendar year. And then it's attached to the, uh, the Taylor McNamara report, which says this will continue, okay, into 1965, which at that time it will be, it will do, that will be finished. Now, if you remember, and I think Jeff mentions this in his article, the MSM did not like what Oliver was positing about either the Warren Commission or Vietnam. Because if you put those two things together, it's a pretty big condemnation of the corporate media. Because the last volumes of the Warren Commission came out near the end of 1964, and the first combat troops went to Vietnam in March of 1965. How could you miss such a thing? You know, but they did. And Oliver Stone was essentially putting it all out there for millions of people to see throughout the world. Okay. So as, as me and Jeff have posited in both my first part to this and his second part, I think this is a way of getting back. This was a way of getting back at Oliver was to attack Fletcher. But it, it didn't work because with the, when the ARB declassified the documents, <laughs> they found evidence that they couldn't even deny. That was the SECDEF meeting of May 1963 in which McNamara is over there in Hawaii and saying, please pass in the withdrawal schedules. <laughs> and he then looks at them and he looks up to everybody there, you know, the CIA, State Department, Pentagon, and says, this is too slow. We have to speed this up. So if you ever need any more convincing, that was it. I mean, even the New York Times had to admit, even the Philadelphia Inquirer had to admit, you know, Kennedy had a plan to get out of Vietnam. But nobody apologized to Fletcher or Oliver, did they? You know? So anyway, <clears throat> I just got that off my chest. <laughs> All right. Very good. 
Well, I'm okay, sure we'll be talking about that further. So Have thank you uh, so much for your time and uh, those announcements that you are uh, speaking. Uh, so uh, check Kennedy's and King, and I'm sure you'll have the exact time and dates there. If people yes, want to yes, see we will. All right. Okay, we'll talk to you later, Jim. Have a good night. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you.